0: You guys heard me share a little bit about it last week uh, as we kind of roll into a missions focus. I don't want to call it a series because to me it's, it's, it's more than just a series you go through. Uh, our missions focus now for the next four weeks is to really bring attention to the commission we've been given to go therefore and make disciples. And for who we are and the, the, the focus that we put on missions It doesn't necessarily mean it's an international thing only. I think for a lot of people that mission mindset is, well, I gotta sell everything, I gotta go overseas, and go to uh, the deepest, darkest part of the world, uh, and that's missions, whereas that is true. And some people are called to do that, and you're gonna hear from uh, somebody today that has done that and taken up that call in their life. However, missions is there, but it's also right here. And ultimately, it starts right here. So, who we are, and, and that commission that we take on—the obedient uh, uh, obedience to follow Christ and do what He calls us to do—we have a mission field inside the walls of our home. We started that. We went through that uh, the past four weeks of marriage and family, and the mission that we have as moms and dads to raise our children in the Lord but then to hopefully equip them in the Lord so that when they go out to their campus, our campuses, our schools, our places of work, our community right here is our mission field as well. So that is our focus for the next four weeks or so. But hopefully for all time. It's not, I don't want it to be just a, That's why I said I don't want it to be just a series and a nice little thing to think about, but it really needs to be a lifestyle no matter who you are and where God has you. So that that focus uh, of taking on that commission to go and make disciples, to be God's witnesses wherever we are. So that's what we're going to focus on. And so today, I get to enjoy because we've invited uh, some wonderful, wonderful friends of ours, Ted and Judy Lawler of Breath of Heaven Ministries. They, uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to steal Ted's thunder here because he'll share all about it. But uh, they have been called by God to. Uh, go visit the orphans and widows, as James 1.27 says, and God called them to Zambia, Africa. And so I'm going to let them share the story and and all about what that is, but I've had the privilege to uh, go to Breath of Heaven in Zambia on a couple of occasions in 2017 and return. Actually, my wife made me go back in 2018. Um, (laughs) She said, how about you go for a month this time? (laughs) I was like, okay, I'll get out of your way, sure. Sure. I had the opportunity to go and visit and be there, and I, I tell you what, we have uh, such a huge heart for this ministry, and so they're going to be introduced to you today to share all about it and how, ultimately, you can get involved with the ministry as the Lord leads, but I'd like to get out of the way and invite Pastor Ted Lawler to come on up right. and he's going to share all about the rest the ministry Well, good morning,
1: everyone. Good morning. I've lived in Temecula since 1983. Any of you born yet there, 1983? (laughs) Some of you, some of you were born before then. And I never knew this place was here. (laughs) I never knew there was a golf course over here in Lake Elsinore in such a beautiful setting. This is amazing. I was thinking, I gotta come over here and go out to breakfast some morning with my wife. That's a beautiful, it's open, right? Anybody can go? Wow, and just think, you're right here after church, you can all go over and eat. What more can you have for a better place? place to fellowship and eat and hear the Word of God. It's amazing, and this is a beautiful, beautiful setting. So I appreciate uh, Pastor Cam giving me the opportunity to come and share the Word of God with you. I didn't realize that it was a missions uh, week or, or not week, a uh, series or uh, focus that uh, he was going to have beyond this but interestingly, when I was preparing and asking the Lord what to share about, I I was focused on uh, God's calling, or when God calls men and women, and what our response is. And it's interesting, uh, if you'll turn to Exodus chapter three, Exodus chapter three, and what I like, while you're going there, what I like about the Bible is that it presents or tells a story of real, ordinary people real ordinary people sometimes we think about all these people in the bible they're just saints perfect in every way but as we'll look at these few people we're going to talk about this morning we'll see their strengths and their weaknesses the lord gives us examples of real ordinary people that he chooses to work through and that's it through and that's the encouragement for you and i that because we see that these people who god works through are not perfect It means he can work through us who are not perfect. And so I want to look at three different people this morning in the Bible who God called and their response to his call. We're going to look at Moses, we're going to look at Isaiah, and we're going to look at Jonah. All right? So in chapter 3, I want to look at the call of Jonah. We'll look at chapter 3, verse 1. And it says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burning. When the Lord saw the turn and he turned aside to see, God saw called to him, out of the bush moses moses and he said here am i then he said do not come near take your sandals off your feet from the place in which you are standing is holy ground and he said i am the god of your father the god of abraham the god of isaac the god of jacob and moses hid his face and he was afraid to look at god now that's pretty interesting for a beginning so this is the beginning of Moses' interaction with God. And you would think if you had a personal appearance of God in a burning bush, that would be all you would need to respond to God and say, Wow, <laughs> I surrender and I'll do whatever you call me to do. But Moses had a few butts. You know, his big butt got in the way. So we're gonna see here there are four at least four butts that Moses had when he was interacting with God. When God called him, most of us would say, Lord, just give me a burning bush, I'll do whatever. But Moses had a butt problem. So in verse 7 it says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Parasites, the Hevites, the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has is, come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring the people, the children of Israel out of Egypt. Yes, Lord. Boy, that burning bush experience was enough for me. I'll do whatever you say. But... Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, God says, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then he goes through again some other things that he's going to do and who he's going to reveal himself as. And then we'll go over to verse 4. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe or listen to me. I don't know about you, but if God was telling me to do something, I don't think I'd bargain with him. But Moses, uh, I guess he was uh, confident enough to do that. They will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? So then, in order to give Moses further proof, he gives them a number of signs. And he said, These signs will be part of what he will do when he's before Pharaoh. But then down in verse 10 it says, after seeing these signs, a snake uh, turning into a stick and putting his hand in his cloak and his hand turning to leprosy and then taking it out and seeing it uh, restored, then taking the water and pouring the water on the sand and then it turning into the flood p- Moses still has another butt. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servants. But I am now slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who has made him mute, or deaf, or seeing, or blind? It is, is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your, your mouth, and teach you what you shall speak. Okay, Lord. Yes, Lord. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Boy, you're treading on, you know, troubled ground when you're getting to that. Telling the Lord to send somebody else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Oh, my gosh, he's going to slay Moses. No. He said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Be what be, but behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. And you speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth. And will teach you both what to do. So Moses had a number of excuses, excuses, excuses. And then finally, he surrenders and does what God calls him to do. So, how many of us have had excuses when God has spoken to us? Maybe not as dramatically as far as the uh, burning bush type of experience. But in reading the word or sometimes in conversation and in prayer, we have a sense that God is moving us. Like Ham said, it doesn't have to be going halfway around the world. Minister to people. It could be ministering in our family. It can be ministering to our neighbors. It can be uh, interacting with somebody that uh, tends to be a little difficult, and you want to sh- shy away from. And the Lord is impressing you. Move out and be my voice. Speak to that situation, and I'll be with you. And we have the the confidence today, as the people of God, in in as a result of Pentecost and the coming and. Being baptized with the Spirit we have the reality of God is Emmanuel not only with us but he is upon us and empowers us to do whatever task he calls us to do and th- they didn't have the indwelling spirit in the way we do and in, in the spirit present and available to them in the way we do today so this is quite different so Moses in spite of all his butts God uses them and one I like especially because we think this is the way everybody should act. Look at Isaiah chapter 6, please. Isaiah chapter 6. This is the vision that Isaiah had. Chapter 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I've got to stop there. You know, sometimes with me, I love a group called uh, Maverick. I know some of you have heard them. They're, they're a contemporary group. And their worship is very anointed. And a lot of the music we have today is anointed. But I don't know whether it's me, my age, or what. But sometimes they go on and on at the end of the song pour out pour out pour out you know they'll repeat the same phrase over and over and over again and my brain gets brain dead after you know about two minutes of singing that so i told this uh, one man that used to work at the village with us Michael divine i said wow that's that's just you know too much repetitious too too much repetition he said well you're gonna have a tough time in heaven he said, why? Well, look at Isaiah chapter 6, 1. Holy, 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 holy. I don't know how many thousand years we're going to be saying, holy, holy, holy. So maybe the Lord has prepared me for, get, to get used to a little bit of repetition, but I think I'm going to be right there with him. Holy, holy, holy. Maybe the Lord will say, you're going to have to say a few more holies because you didn't want to keep repeating. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King of glory, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away from you, your sin atoned for. And I have heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? who will go for us? And he said, here am I, send me. And he said, go and say to this people. Now the the word that he gives Isaiah to go and give to the people is a word of judgment and a word of rebuke. But Isaiah says, Lord, just send me. His response was complete surrender, no questioning. And we think that's the way it happens all the time for everybody. No, it doesn't. Moses had his excuses. More excuses, more, more excuses. Isaiah had a vision and in response to that vision and the Lord speaking to him, he was totally surrendered and willing to go. Can you imagine going to, to, to give a message to people and telling them that they're, they're uh, needing to repent and their lifestyle is not quite biblical. you know today today sometimes we're afraid to say something because we might be cancelled culturally or something you know what's going on today? But here, Isaiah, he responded and said, Yes, Lord, I'm going to do that, and I'm going, and he give that message. But we have another guy named Jonah who responded in a different way. So if you go to Jonah in chapter 1, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Jonah said yes Lord no Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord now Tarshish was the in that time the farthest place that you could get away the far far end of what people knew as uh, what they traveled to so he got as far away from God as he could when God said this is what I want you to do he ran from God now you know each one of these illustrations are typical either of many of us at some point in our lives or even now or what. But we're, what I want you to see is in spite of people's responses and we're very quick to judge people where God is is willing to give people even second chances in hearing him. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. And when he gets on this ship they start out to sea, and what, what happens, they, a major storm comes up, and Jonah's down in the, in the hull of the ship sleeping, resting. And the, peop- the sailors are all frightened. They're feeling they're going to crash. They're gonna, uh, this ship is going to be destroyed. And they wake Jonah up, and Jonah comes up, and he's calm about it. Well, they're, a little, they're crying out to their gods. They're crying out to their gods to rescue them and they remember that jonah told them about their god his god and that he was running from his god so they think that maybe the problem they're having with the storm is because of jonah and jonah then tells them to throw him overboard oh well, was pretty nice of him wasn't it to do that so eventually they try going to the shore and keep rowing and rowing and rowing but before that they do throw jonah overboard And he gets swallowed up by a great fish. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Well, I really like sushi. I don't know about you. But I don't know whether I'd want to be even one day in the belly of a big fish. But what I like about Jonah is in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, and I love this prayer of repentance and crying out to God, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, You heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in me, over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down into the land whose bars closed upon me forever. You brought me up, my life from the pit, O Lord my God. My life was fading away. I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and vomited Jonah out of the to the dry land then the Lord gives Jonah another chance the word of the Lord chapter 3 verse 1 comes to Jonah the second time arise to Nineveh the great city and call out against it the message that I tell you now this time Jonah was a little bit um, more aware of what might happen if he didn't say what God told do what God told him to do and he said Jonah went and rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord And Nineveh was a big, big city. It was one of the biggest cities known at that time. And there were over 120,000 people. And it took three days to cross the city. And he was going preaching a word of judgment and a word that was coming. And he did not want to preach that word. These were a group of pagans. They were a group of non, they weren't um, Hebrews and he didn't think they were worthy to to, for god's attention because israel were the people of god so he was pretty upset that he was sent and they not only heard the word but they repented and you would think that jonah would rejoice but in chapter 4 verse 1 it says it, it displeased jonah exceedingly that in other words they were I'm sorry, in 3 verse 10, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord, and said, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. So Jonah was upset that God gave the Ninevites a blessing and showed his compassion upon them and saved them. So three different people. And Jonah even after it was done and he saw what God did, you think Jonah would be celebrating what God did? No, he was still upset, he was still angry. But God didn't reject Jonah. You know, he sent him the little shade with the big plant that went over him when the sun was shining on him. You'll see in verse chapter 4. And then that was destroyed. and He was upset that the plant was destroyed. And God was saying, who are you to be angry? There were about the tree. There was 120,000 people in that city that were rescued. So three different people. One with excuses, excuses, excuses. One with just, bam, God spoke. And that was it. He responded to the vision. And we think, we think all the people in the Bible are like that, but obviously they're not. And then there comes Jonah. Jonah being resistant to the will of God and running from God and not doing what God would want him to do. I, I don't know about you, but I've had different seasons in my life where God has called me to different things, and I've been pretty much open to them. Fortunately, I have a wife with a great deal of faith alongside me. You know, Even now with some things that... Uh, We're called to do, we have we have a ministry that is built totally on faith. And they probably say, Well that's obvious, it should be built on faith. Well it's obvious, but you're always you know you've heard the saying from glory to glory. Well, for me and my understanding of that is when you get a small problem and God solves it, you say glory. And then God allows a bigger problem to come, and you say, Glory. Then a bigger problem comes. Glory! And then bigger problems. Have been. Glory to God! There's always, that's what glory to glory means. Glory to glory doesn't mean that we live a problem filled life. We get to see and respond to God's glory because He's moved in our midst and He is lifted up and, and glorified. So I wanted to share with you my testimony of my calling as to uh, our being in Zambia. About two. In 2003, I was invited to go to a uh, men's group meeting in Phoenix, Arizona. There was a group called the Promise Keepers. I don't know if you were some of aware of them at the time. They were a men's movement. And there were something like 50,000 people that were meeting in a stadium in Phoenix. And two of my elders came and told me, oh, we got you a ticket, and we're going to send you there. And you think I would have been all excited. I was really quite frustrated. I said, well, did you think to ask me first? You know, I've got a lot to do. I've got a plan. So I went. And I went, sit, sat in the, the seat in the stadium up towards the top. My arms folded and just didn't want to be there. And the first person that spoke, he's the pastor of the church called uh, Mosaic in Los Angeles, where my son-in-law is also a pastor. I've read his books and I know his ministry. And event. what am I doing here? Then the next guy got up, his name was Wilkerson. He wrote a book called The Prayer of Jabez. I read his book. I knew all about that. But he didn't speak about the Prayer of Jabez. He started to speak about the uh, AIDS HIV endemic in sub-Saharan Africa that was overwhelming people at that time. Millions of people dying and uh, children being left as orphans. And what they were asking for was 5,000 pastors to go to somewhere in sub-Saharan Africa to see what they could do to help the church to deal with these kinds of problems. And while he was talking about going to Africa, in my mind, I was going, no, no way, just no way. But the more he talked, at the same time, tears were coming down my face as he was talking about the orphans. And I thought, what is going on? Then he sat down and he was finished. But next came in a guy named Coach McCartney. McCarthy, and he got up, and like a football coach, he said, if you're supposed to go to Africa this summer, you get down here now. And I was way up in the top of the stadium, and I ran down the stairs, and I'm looking, up saying, who's pushing me? Who's pushing me down here? And and I got down, and I fell down in the dirt. And I know now, you know, looking back, it was the Holy Spirit. It was definitely the Holy Spirit, because I was resistant, but yet someone was pushing me. And when God pushes you, you move. So I fell down into the dirt, sobbing, sobbing. I said, Lord, what is going on? Am I losing my mind? I, I, I feel this conflict going on. And then he showed me that in 1987, I went to Nigeria, West Africa for a, uh, six weeks to work with a Nigerian friend of mine who I went to Bible school with. And while I was there, I got malaria. And I had been taking the anti-malaria drug, but there was a new strain I didn't know about. And I got that bug. So they sent me back to the US. (laughs) They even uh, tried praying over me. And I was so bad, a bunch of women came in at night. And you know, I thought it would have been spiritual about it. I, I chuck it up to the malaria. But they came and they were praying around me. In the middle of the night, I'm sleeping. And then all of a sudden, you see about eight women Around you at three in the morning. All of a sudden, you know, with the way they do with the boys, I can't do it. And I'm saying, What are you doing? Get out of here! Get out of here! I was like, What is going on? I thought, Wow. So I had this malaria. They sent me back to the States. They put me in the Fallbrook Hospital for two weeks. And after two weeks, the doctor said, You have cerebral malaria. It's all through your body up into your brain. It doesn't look good. It looks like you may not make it. He said, but we're going to try to do a blood transfusion tomorrow and see if that can help out. So the church came back again to pray and prayed over me. And the next morning the doctor said, I'm going to take your blood and test it before we do the transfusion. He comes back to me and he says, I don't know what to tell you. Last night you were loaded with the parasite. I did the blood test. Today there is no sign of any parasite in your body. And he said, as a doctor, I can't explain it. He said, but as a Christian, he said, I know God did something. But as a doctor, I can't explain it. He kept going back to, as a doctor, I can't explain it. Because he didn't want to be pegged as a doctor who was saying, I guess, there was a miracle going on in his office. I don't know. I said, don't worry, doc. I won't tell anybody that you were my doctor. So I'll give all the credit to God. And nobody will have a problem with this. He said, okay. So when I was on the ground... All of a sudden i was reminded of when i had gotten the malaria that i wasn't reminded god showed me that somewhere deep down inside not even something i was aware of i made a deep inner vow that i would never go back to africa because i was afraid i might die i didn't know that it was something that was deep down and when the lord revealed that to me when i was on the ground i said i'm so sorry lord i said I took care of all that in 1975 when I surrendered my life to you. If I die in Africa, or if I die, anybody know where Awanga is on the way to Palm Springs? Rocks and snakes. and <laughs> Or if I die in Awanga, that's up to you. So, Lord, forgive me, and I'll go wherever you want me to go. And that's when he spoke to my heart and said that we would give the rest of our life to working with orphans. So I came home, told my wife, she said, God said it, and then the essentially said, let's do it. So that was then the beginning of our moving towards, and I had a call from somebody I hadn't heard from in a long time, wanted to know what I was doing. actually wanted to find out how I started our Hispanic congregation and get some information about that. And then he asked, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm maybe going with a group to, to, to Africa. And he said, oh, we're doing a work in Zambia feeding 3,000 kids a week. Would you like to come over here to see what we're doing? So I went the minute I went to the... Uh, Arrived at the airport a guy approached me. He said I remember you. I remember you came and did a healing conference in 1975 in Vegas where I was a pastor at this church uh, assistant pastor at this church. I didn't remember him and God put us together and he became our uh, Operations director to help build all the buildings and everything that we have so and God gave us a vision for a church a school and 14 homes and a medical clinic. And as of today, we've opened up our first uh, home, I think in 2009, 10, and then we were meeting with our school in the houses, but then because when you go out of our property then and you went down the street, there was a a big uh, flow of water, especially in the rain, and the kids would have to cross over it. And one day I was driving down and I saw them yelling on the other side to me as I was passing. They couldn't pass and they're yelling, Abusa, Abusa, save us. And Abusa Nanja is a pastor. So, and I thought I was so upset. I said, I wonder if the president of Zambia has to worry about his kids floating down a river, <laughs> you know, because of the, the water. So that's when we decided that we were, we felt the Lord gave us to go ahead to begin a school. And as of today, we have 10 homes built, we have 100 kids in, in residence in what are essentially family homes with 12 kids in each one with a house mother. And we have over we have 400 kids in the community or in the school from elementary to high school. And we have a piece of property where it was donated and we're just starting our uh, lab for the uh, uh, high school. And then the Lord provided the money at our uh Banquet, our fundraiser, just a month ago to be able to. We just finished building our clinic, our whole clinic, and the money $50,000. Somebody came that I never even met and said they loved what we're doing and sent us a check for $50,000 to do all the supplies, all the the medicines. And, you know, hey, you know, I'm going to say, some people say to me, it's amazing what you're doing. I'm not doing anything. It's what God's doing. They say, oh, you must have all these contacts with all these rich people. No, I haven't. It's God's put somebody in at different times. But for the most part, when we started, I said, Lord, how am I going to do this? I'm trying to uh, raise money for building a church. I was a pastor here in Temecula for 30 years. And this is when I was 55, I think, 54, when we got the call for that. And I said, I've got all this raising money for a building. How am I going to do this in Africa at the same time? And the Lord quieted my heart and just spoke to my heart that he was going to take care of it It would come from outside. A few weeks after I got back from our first visit to Zambia, a man who I discipled in our church many years ago moved back to our area, and he was now doing a business where he built uh, golf courses. And he was there the day when I showed the a video of what we were doing in our vision. And he called us to his house, had dinner, and then after dinner he said, my wife and I want to help out. And I've never gotten a check like this. He gave us a check for $60,000. Now, I was trying to be very pastoral. I said, God bless you, my son. And my wife, thank you, Jesus! Thank you, Jesus! Thank you, Jesus! And at the same time, a couple of weeks later, we got a Mail, something in the mail, where somebody from, I think it was Laguna, Niguel, up in that area, I don't know how they got our name or found out what we were doing. The woman said, my little daughter found out that you were uh, doing this mission for orphans, and she wanted to help out. She's four years old. So she emptied her piggy bank, and this $5 check is from her piggy bank. And the Lord spoke to my heart, and she, he said, I can make it happen through a five-year-old with five dollars or I could make it happen from sixty thousand whatever it's nothing to me I'm the one who's directing this. so I wanted to let you see we deal with orphans that double orphans and single orphans double orphans mean in Zambia according to the United Nations they designate orphans as double and single double, double meaning they've lost both parents single means the father typically has died and the family becomes vulnerable because the woman has no means of income and oftentimes she either goes out and begs or the kids go out and begs or can wind up in prostitution. In Zambia there's over 60% unemployment in the city areas and 70% in the villages and when it hit in 2003 and earlier than that, 20% of the population had AIDS, HIV so when uh you look at the situation there with the kids in the homes they come from many of them don't have, uh, they might have one meal a day they might have meat once or twice a month there many of them uh, can go to elementary school because the government pays but by the time they get to high school they have to pay for different fees and uniforms and stuff like that and they can't pay for it oftentimes grandparents are left taking care of 10 or 12 kids and they don't have the money to do it, so they can't send their kids to school. So our kids are about a third of them, or half of them—I say half of them—are double orphans, and the other uh, percentage of them are uh, single orphans, meaning in a vulnerable situation. We also have a scholarship program now that we've developed, where we reach out to the community at large because we're in right in the community, and uh, there's some people part of a community that are a little. There's not really a middle class, but they're a little better off or they can build their own houses, and they can afford to come to a private school. So that helps us to uh, do the school and become more self-sufficient. But I decided to reach out to really vulnerable kids, and instead of having them wind up going into a residential program, if we could support them by way of education, and now we have about how many kids, Judy? Sixty? Seventy? Fifty kids? that uh, were uh, supporting by way of scholarship to be able to come to our school. But the neat thing is, when we first started it, they had to pass uh, testing to pass to be able to get in, and many of them hadn't been in school. One mother had homeschooled her child, even though that's not a common thing in Zambia. And most of them were grandparents, so they posted uh, on the school board who, made it in other words out of the 50 kids i don't know how many applied and when they saw their names the, the grandmothers and the mothers and and the, the kids were falling down on the ground raising their hands up to god crying out to god thank you god for saving me thank you for this opportunity to go to school knowledge is power you know they're not worried in uh, zambia about uh, you know if they're going to get a pair of nike shoes to go to school they're looking for an opportunity to go because knowledge is power and they consider it a blessing. I wanted to show you this short video clip. It's actually about a year and a half old, uh, maybe two, but uh, this is little Emmanuel. He's going to give you a little tour of the village.
2: I am eight years old. Brother baby, is my home. We love living at Jerusalem. We go to school. We learn many subjects. We love to read, like mathematics and science. We have teachers who teach us so well. We have mothers who take care of us. We have friends that we never had before. We play games. Hey. You like hey, we ride bikes. We laugh together. We eat good food. <laughs> there are many people who love us. And we learn how to love each other. Before we came here, life was hard. We would only eat maybe one meal per day. We never got meat. We did not know what would be in our future. But now our lives are different. As we get older, we know that our future is good. We have a beautiful school. And soon we have a new high school and transmission home for the other kids. By God's grace there are opportunities that others don't. They have sponsors that you never had. And education you never had. And there are so many things to thank God for. We are thankful support. We are thankful for your love. Thank you that you make better living in our
1: home. So I just want to encourage you this morning that you just be open to the Lord as even you go through these next few weeks about mission. You know, as Cameron said, you know, we have a sending God. God sent his son Jesus. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, whoever believes in him shall perish but have everlasting life And commissioned and called him to come we are called and commissioned to go into all the world whether it's Judea, Samaria or the other ends of the earth and I just encourage you to be open to God to use you however to be his arms, hands and feet to a lost and dying
0: generation of people God bless you thank you Abusa um, actually I'm not going to let you sit down uh, would you mind, uh, you or uh, Judy or whoever, would you come up and tell us and just share with us a little bit about the specific ways that people can get involved uh, and, and how they can support and how they can be involved with all the various aspects of the school, the kids, the the homes, whatever it might be. Would you mind sharing a little bit about
3: that? Well, the backbone uh, of the ministry is child sponsorship. That's the regular monthly giving, um, so what we do is we assign a child, if you wanted to be a child sponsor from any, you could sponsor a child for from $50 a month or, or more than that, it's more than that to support a child with the education and the medical and everything. But you can start with a donation of $50 a month, you'd be assigned a child, you can write to that child and that child gets to know you. Uh, Melvin and Yolanda sponsors, Cam and Jessica sponsors, and so they can tell you, you know, how that works. But you get to see that child grow, and a lot of our sponsors even help them after high school as they're going further for their education. So child sponsorship is always an, a need for us. Uh, we're very dependent on it, and other things we can all you can always. Uh, one-time donations right as ted said we're furnishing the medical clinic we're trying to get that up and running we're in the process of building a high school so there's always needs for you know capital development and and that sort of thing which god provides step by step by step he's just providing the way so those are the the main things ways to get involved
1: You know, you see who the brains are, eh? She, She's the financial end, too. <laughs> my wife had a, uh, you know, both of us founder and co-founder, but it's great when God puts you together as a team. Mm-hmm. My background before I became a pastor was in, uh, got a master's degree in social work, and I never thought I'd be back in doing any kind of social work stuff. So when we had the vision for the village, my background enabled me to put something together that I knew was more current. In her background she was uh, had a master or had a BA in math and was an actuary. Uh, she'll tell you about that later. I'm trying to find out what that is and we've been married for 50 years. I'm
3: not talking about it. it's boring. <laughs>
1: but it's not accountant it's more than that. She told me it's a financial futurist. Tutor- what does that mean that's something to do with Star Trek or what but uh, she helped uh, he's been overseeing the school with uh, the financial aspect and director of the school along with our principals and we've just turned over all of the uh, uh, ministry in Zambia, the school and to our direct country director now we have raised up, our other directors and we still oversee it, but they are now and she just stepped back from being the director uh, after doing it all these years. So uh, we are blessed and we encourage you, if you can help out in any way, and also to be praying for us. You know, every time we go to Zambia, we're going back in January. We have lived there for six months during the year, but now it's going to be three months because we're, we've are we given over a lot of the ministry there, and we're trying to raise up some uh, leadership here for taking over. But every time we go, we go from L.A. to Dubai, it's 16 hours. Then from Dubai down to Zambia, it's another seven and a half hours. That's 23 hours of flying. And after... Uh, since doing that for 2003, I think we're entitled yeah. to one one visit, one trip, <laughs> for, for two flights back and forth. Because you know you get older, you know you don't have as much meat, <laughs> and you're sitting in those planes for a long time. But well, we go ahead.
3: I was just gonna say one, other, and I'm seeing the kids here is reminding me. Uh, uh, another way to help is like like fundraising events. And we had a little girl recently. We talked. We she had an award at our banquet. She, the Lord put on her heart to bake cookies and sell them, and she made very fancy cookies and she sold them. And what did she raise? Something like nine hundred dollars. This was a, a child. Maybe she's ten years old. But so the Lord puts things like that on people's hearts, and they become involved and help, because obviously it is a lot of money to keep things going over there. The other way is visits to the village. Cam mentioned he's been there a couple of times. I'm hoping the whole family can come. But when you go and visit and you minister to the children there and the staff there, it is just amazing uh, experience. And uh, blesses the kids so much. They can't wait till the visitors come. They they love Americans. (laughs) I forgot
1: to say our first uh, couple of graduating class, Seven or eight kids in them. Now we have this year. There'll be seventeen kids that have come out of going to uh, high school, and we have two that are in pre-law. One is just going into medical school. Another one in psychology. Another one getting a degree in social work. Two getting degrees in engineering, and then uh, one in fashion design. So we help our kids beyond that because to go to school in Zambia, to a university, a room board and tuition can be about 200 or $250 a month for, for university. So some of the sponsors stay with them. So they have, like he said, we have a future. And these kids who are living in despair and lack of hope now have hope in the future because of God's grace and
3: God's mercy and hand upon the orphans and the widows. Amen.